It's the Overboard Podcast, this week's Series 2, Episode 7. Where in the world is Cornflake? We'll find out. We chat to young artist and author Hafsa Idris. And it was only in 2013 that I published my first novel at the age of 19. And all your regular features on this week's Overboard Podcast. Welcome to the Overboard Podcast, Series 2, Episode 7. Um, the inside scoop to the world of travel, tourism and entertainment. And we like to keep it simple. So, no overthinking, no advertisements, just hearty discussion. Joining me this week, staring down the barrel of his camera, live from Liverpool, it's Benjamin Cliff. Hello. Why do you always say joining me this week? I join you every week. Because Why don't you always say and joining me as ever? Because that English isn't really correct, is it? It makes it sound like every week you have a different guest. Well, but if you're the first time listener, you wouldn't know, would you? But I still join you every week. It doesn't make any difference whether or not you're a first-time listener or not. Shall we start with Cornflake? Now, David, yes, of course. Last week, as always, Cornflake was off on uh, his little adventure. Now, just to clarify some of the clues that you had, the flight time from London was seven hours. From Amsterdam, six hours and 30 minutes. From Frankfurt, six hours and 25 minutes. And once landed, you'd be greeted with a population of roughly 3.3 million. Now, more than half of the population of the Misty Destination are aged between 25 and 34, so it's a youthful city. The city itself has the longest automated train network in the world, stretching 74.6 kilometres, and it's only in the last few years that the residents of the city have been assigned street addresses. Before that, people just directed people to places according to local landmarks. Now, you said at the end of the show last week you thought you knew where Cornflake was because you'd actually worked there. So, tell us... Where is he? In 1999, for six weeks, I worked on Jumeirah Beach in Dubai. It is Dubai. Well done. Congratulations, Dave. Very good indeed. How was your time working in Dubai? Um, I didn't really enjoy it there. I'd just spent six months in Cairo in Egypt and the, the comparison... Oh, you loved that, oh, didn't I did. you? I loved it and it was very real. So Dubai was very plastic. It's changed a lot, obviously. It's 20 years ago, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I know. And in, in Saudi, well, Saudi Arabia and, in, and Dubai and places like that, they love the Flintstones, don't they? Especially in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> oh dear, that's terrible. <laughs> Shall we have tonight's first clue? Yes, it's that time again for the further adventures of Cornflake. We all know how to play this, don't we? Do we? Well, if we don't, let me tell you how we play. It's very simple. Every single week, we send our little Cornflake, our little imaginary cat, somewhere around the globe. And he sends back clues because he can type and write and also speak. He's an amazing kind of cat. Uh, I give you these clues. And then David and, of course, you, dear listener, need to decipher where Cornflake has been. So... Without further ado, here is clue number one. Flight time from London to tonight's mystery destination is roughly 50 minutes. From Amsterdam, it's one hour and 30 minutes. And from Frankfurt, it's one hour and 20 minutes. Now, once landed, you would be greeted with a population of roughly 335,000. Where do you think Cornflake is this evening? You 
you are listening to the Overboard podcast with David and Ben. Now it's time for Did You See? We take some of the more obscure headlines from the week and uh, I, I basically ask you, did you see them? Uh, before I start, I would like to tell you that I went to Vienna last weekend. I was invited by the tour guides of Vienna to go and join them for a little bit of a social evening. So big thank you to Margit, Judith, Weiler, Reiner. Maria, Petra and Wolfgang for a wonderful evening last Friday in Vienna. Now, we did have a poll last week and I have the results. The question was, what would be your dream role if you had the chance to work on board a cruise ship? Um, Here are the results. 39% of the votes went to A, Captain. 30%, what do you think comes second? Well, I would have thought entertainer, but I don't know. Well, I would have as well, but it was Shore Excursions Manager with 30% of the vote. Entertainer came third with 24%. Uh, then it came sort of the reception area, front of house guest services, 5%. Hotel manager, just 2%. And nobody wanted to be the restaurant manager on board the ship. Oh, that's sad, isn't it? It's understandable, though, isn't it? Now, also last week, can you remember this? If you had if you had to get a job built before the end of the year, what would you go for? I'd start with your qualifications. I'd start a franchise of a carpet cleaning business. Really? Yeah. It's all about franchises and starting up businesses. It's not the time to be starting up a business, is it? Why not? Because people don't think, oh god, there's a pandemic. Let's get the carpet cleaned. <laughs> I think there's. A- <laughs> People were saying that I was mocking you. Um, I was mocking you a little bit, but there there are reasons for that because um, we're always joking about your your tapas bar that you want to start. And then suddenly I I was a bit taken aback when you said you wanted to be start of a carpet cleaning business. Can I just read you this? This is from Kev O'Brien. He put, the carpet cleaning suggestion is actually a very good one. I am doing almost exactly that. For example, all private care homes will be forced to adhere to much stricter cleaning standards, hence much shorter periods between floor cleaning maintenance. Um, It's not such a crazy idea at all. In fact, the sector is one of those that is likely to thrive in our new vaccinated antiseptic crazy world. And I, I hear that you've had some feedback as well. Yeah, our very own Darren Collins messaged me to say he thought it was an absolute great idea because um, he said during lockdown, everyone's done work on their houses. They've repainted, they've, you know, they've done structural work and stuff. And the last thing to be done are the carpets. And he thinks it's a very viable business plan. And uh, yeah, you're the only one, David, really, who didn't think it's a really good idea. But well, um, well, there is a good... I think there's, um, there's mileage in that. There is a good reason for that. You haven't got any carpets? I haven't got any carpets in the house at all. Um, so, no. <laughs> so I can't clean any of my carpets. Unless it's a, a euphemism. And then I wouldn't know what the euphemism would be. <laughs> I think we should move on, don't you? All right. After hearing Mark Stanley last week describing Mallorca, Jocelyn was so moved that she thought about visiting there. So um, he must have done a wonderful job in describing that. It was good to hear him. Um, and if you are going to Calabona, Stanley's. Go and visit Stanley's. Um I'm driving up to Scotland and binge listening to the last few episodes. It's making me laugh and smile all the way. And that was from Zoe in Scotland. Hello, Zoe. Right. Did you see, Benjamin, that there are currently 320,000 people who are learning Klingon? This is the fictional language featured in the television show Star Trek on language app Duolingo. What do you think about that? I think it's absolutely bonkers. These people need their heads examined, don't they? It's no one's going to turn up for an interview and go, do you speak another language? And then they go, yeah, I do, actually. Oh, brilliant. Is it French, Spanish, Polish? No, no, it's Klingon. Well, and they'll just be like, right, see you later. Out the door. I don't think they're learning it to get a job, are they? 
Well, why are they learning it then? Because why are they learning this language? You have no sense of fun. These people go to Star ha- Trek conventions so they can speak their own language. There are a lot of people that love Star Trek. I know there are, and that's absolutely great, and I have no problem with that. But learning a fictional language, 320,000 people, that means there are 320,000 loons in the world. And if you are listening to this and you are learning it, you are a loon. Did you see, Benjamin, um, at the end of a pilgrimage trail, which is called the Camino di San Tommaso in a small town, Ortona, Italy, one can come across a free wine fountain. Now, it's provided by Dora Sarchese Vineyard and completely available for tourists from all over the world 24-7. You can taste the locally produced wine for no cost and enjoy beautiful sights of Italy. Did you see this? Do you know what? It's funny, Dave, because I did a project uh, at the end of last winter and I was looking for interesting facts about Italy and this came up. It's incredible. Do you know anybody can drink from it, Dave? The only people that are not allowed to drink from it? Children. No, people who are drunk. Oh, really? Yeah, if you're drunk, you're not allowed to drink from it. But otherwise, you're free to help yourself whenever you like. Did you see that on SA Victory website, uh, another reason to continue travelling is uh, the fact or the quote that money spent on experiences like travelling is more likely to bring you lasting happiness uh, than money spent on material things. This is happening because with time passing, people get used to material objects. In other words, the happiness from the things you've bought will eventually decrease, whereas those one-off events will remain in your memories, bringing you only joy that increases. Did you see this? I don't... Yeah, I did, and I'm not sure I agree with that. I understand that... I understand the... Uh, the, the preface of it is that, um, you know, you buy something, you get used to it. Whereas you go somewhere mm. new, it's, it's all brand new and, and that's what that forms in your memory. But I do think with this, Dave, what I, what, why I disagree with this in some respects is like I brought a new set of golf clubs and I still love my golf clubs. And that is three years later. As you know, because you mention it every single week, I've recently been on a holiday and the memories from that have subsided straight away. As soon as you come back through the door, it's like, oh, I never went away. The washing machine's on again, you know? Mm-hmm. And you sort of wake up the next day and it's like, well, did I really just spend 10 days, you know, in the sun, enjoying the time with my family? And those memories kind of fade because you just get back into life again. Um, so I kind of, I understand what they're saying, but do I 100% agree with it? I'm not sure. I don't know whether I agree with it either because I have a, a mini, which is a convertible one. So the top, it's not a new mini, it's an old 10, 11, 12 years old. But I just love it. I love it. It's still like a big toy to me. Every time I put that roof down, I love it. I I did have a little question here. Let's ask it. If circumstances suggested that you could only go abroad once every three years, where would you choose? I'd I'd have to go to Mallorca. I just, I spent so many years of my life there. It's got so many happy memories for me. It's for me, it's the the greatest island in the world. It's beautiful. You've got everything you need there. Great weather, great people, great food. And yeah, I'd go to Mallorca. Lunch every day at Stanley's. Lunch every day at Stanley's, without a doubt, I'd be there. Jamaica for me. I just remember being so laid back there and enjoying it. Wonderful. Oh, once again, the sun lounger aspect comes out. Very good. Did you see uh, in the... This is on the gov.uk website. Now, it was published on the 28th of August, 2020. And it's a consultation document. And it's about the changes to the human medicine regulations to support the rollout of COVID-19 vaccinations. I wonder if you're aware of this. Did you see this? No, this is the first I've heard of this, Dave. Okay, so anyone can access this because it's on the gov.uk website. What I'm quite intrigued about is that I've not seen it anywhere. Uh, Someone sent it to me. Um, Now, what it says is that the changes to the UK 
regulatory framework for human medicines which are being introduced to clarify the regulatory context that is relevant to mass vaccination. So basically they're saying this is about when they have a vaccination, how they're going to roll it out. Um, usually, any vaccine must first go through the usual rigorous testing and development process and be shown to meet the expected high standards of safety quality uh, before it can be deployed. From January 2021, which isn't that long, we're only talking a few months away, the UK's licensing authority will have new powers to license all medicines, including vaccines. However, if there is a compelling case on public health grounds for using a vaccine before it is given a product license, given the nature of the threat we face, uh, the JCVI, which is the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation, may take the very unusual step of advising the UK government to use a tested, unlicensed vaccine against COVID-19. And they say they need to make sure that the right legislative measures are in place to deal with that scenario. So this enables the licensing authority to temporarily authorise the supply of an unlicensed medicinal product for use in response to certain specific types of public health threat. Are you clear so far? Yes. Basically, to sum it up in layman's terms, they could introduce a vaccine that's not been trialled or tested properly. No, they don't say trial and tested, but they say unlicensed. They do go on in the document to say this doesn't mean that it's unsafe and that, it's, that it has been tested, but it, it means that it won't go through the proper licensing procedures. They will, they will rush it through right. rather than go through the right, okay. red tape. So they want to clarify the scope of immunity from civil liability. So it applies not just to manufacturers and healthcare professionals, but also to the company placing an unlicensed medicine such as a vaccine on the market with the approval of the licensing authority. So this means that um, the administers of the vaccine and also the makers of the vaccine will be immune from civil liability. So therefore, if the vaccine causes you harm, you cannot sue the maker or the person that gave it to you. Currently, there is a prohibition on promoting an unlicensed medicine to healthcare professionals and the public. Now, the UK government is proposing that this prohibition is disapplied. So it means the amendments proposed will ensure that the use of the vaccine and treatments that have been temporarily authorised for sale or supply can be promoted as part of a national campaign in each of the four countries of the UK. So they're changing the rules on promoting it as well. They also want to expand the workforce legally allowed to administer vaccines. Now, they say the purpose of this consultation exercise is to engage directly with the specific stakeholders that we have identified. And it's in the document. It's quite a long document. Um, mm. They've also said it makes no difference whether the vaccine had been developed in the UK or elsewhere in the EU or completely outside the EU. Um, so basically it's saying that they can have a vaccine that's now going to be unlicensed. They're going to get more people to administer it, um, allowed to administer it, not just the GPs. They're going to allow the advertising nationally of this vaccine, which is against the, the rules previously. Also, you can't sue the person that's given it to you or made it. What do you think about that? I don't know, really, if I'm honest with you. It seems all a bit unethical to me. Is it normal or is it strange? Well, you'd have to say it was strange, wouldn't you? I mean, I can't imagine this is the same scenario for any other vaccine that's come out. Surely... It would be interesting to know what other countries are doing with this, if they have some pre-regulations for the vaccine administration, mm. if you know what I mean. So what I found odd was that it's not been reported. I've not seen this anywhere, and I thought people would be interested in this. Mm. But it is on the yeah, Gov. I mean it's on the gov.uk website if you want to go and have a look at it. 
This is the Overboard Podcast with David and Ben. At some point, I hope they get it. You're going to need a bigger boat. Did you see that doctors have pulled a four-foot snake from a woman's throat after it slithered in as she slept? Did you see this? <laughs> yeah, it's horrific. It's absolutely terrible, this, isn't it? This was on the Metro newspaper. Now, the creature had reportedly slithered into her throat as she slept in her garden in Lavashi, a village in Dagestan, southern Russia, uh, she was feeling unwell. The young woman was rushed to the hospital where she was put to sleep. And, and there's a video, I'm sure you can, uh, if you put in Russian snake woman uh, on YouTube, you will see that they pull out the snake from the woman's throat. And it's, oh, it gives me the creeps thinking about it. Yeah, but I, I find this story incredible because how, how did it not choke her? It's four foot and it slithered down her throat while she was asleep. First of all, she must snore. She must snore, or like one of those ones, you know, like, with the whole mouth open, like, you know, just like that. It comes up, it has a little peek inside. It puts its its head, I'm assuming it goes in head first, in her mouth and then continues its journey all the way down into her gut. So it might have and gone, she doesn't wake up. It might have gone very quickly. It's but spo- it's four foot long, Dave. It spotted the hole and it shot in there. Uh, did you see that the, a US internet company is looking for volunteers to make $1,000 by undergoing a weekend-long digital detox treatment? Did you see this? Yeah, I saw this. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Very Well Mind, an online mental health resource, says doing a digital detox can lower stress and improve your mood. And that's on the oddy.com website. Um, yeah. Do we, do we rely on the internet and, the, the, you know, our, our devices well, too much? Well, I think so. I mean, just to clarify the rest of the story, the idea is that you go and you're locked away and you don't have any internet, you don't have any phone, you don't have any TV, you have nothing like that. So you have no access to, to the outside world whatsoever. But I was thinking about the same thing, Dave. I mean, I, I, can, could you live? I mean, 48 hours you could live with. I don't think that's a long time. But if I said to you now, you've got two weeks to live without the technology in your life, that, okay, let's be, be honest, that 15 years ago you didn't even know really existed. Could you do it now? Could you do two weeks without all of your mod cons with technology? I think so. Really? Yeah. I think it would be lovely. I was watching the TV the other day. Well, actually, I had I had some cartoons on for, for Kiki. She wasn't sleeping. I had some cartoons on. And so I was watching the cartoons with her. And I checked my You know, I had my phone at arm's length, so it was away from her. And I just was having a look at it. And it must have been about 25 seconds later, I picked it up again and checked it again. And I thought, what on earth is wrong with me? You know, sometimes it's awful. Sometimes I'll get up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night and I'll check my phone to see if anyone's messaged me between the time I've been asleep and the time I get up. Yeah, but you keep your phone in the toilet, don't you? Well, yeah, this is very true. So it's very difficult to avoid it. I just think it's, it's, it's crazy now how we need this so much in our lives. Well, you know, like I said, 15 years ago, it wasn't in our lives. You're listening to the Overboard Podcast with David and Ben. Hello, my name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. Do you want a chocolate? Did you see that Andrea Balbi, the president of Venice's Gondoliers Association, laments to the Guardian newspaper that tourists have gotten noticeably heavier over the past 10 to 15 years? Well, there you go. You're always an advocate into people are too fat um, policy, aren't you? So what do you think of this? Look, first of all, I didn't. I don't think you really explained that story well. What he's saying is now that people are too fat for the gondolas and they're sinking them and then hence the story could have come through. I'm not going to comment on that. He's basically saying it can make it very dangerous. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a lump of lard and you come in a gondola, you could sink it. I mean, that's all he's saying. Have you been in a gondola? 
No, I've never been in a gondola. Have you? No, but they're, they're very hard to balance in by even looking at them, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I've seen I've seen them wobbling left, right, and centre, but I, I've never been in one. Clue number two, then, in the further adventures of Cornflake is, despite at one time being the world's richest city, tonight's mystery destination is still Europe's smallest capital. Where is Cornflake? You are listening to the Overboard Podcast with David and Ben. I encourage it. I think think it's really something that they should promote. That piece of music means it's time for anger management. Benjamin, anything that's annoyed you this week? A couple of things this week, Dave. I'd like the answer to the first one from any of our listeners who know. How do you clean a sieve properly? Well, I was doing it earlier. Yeah, well, how? How can you clean a sieve? It's impossible. With, with you, a brush. You, you put, yeah, you brush it. I know you brush it, but then when you put it in the water to wash off the suds, it picks back up any dirt and gets stuck back in the sieve. It's driving me mad. I don't know how to clean the sieve properly. Honestly, it's awful. And the second thing that's got on my nerves is people in your road who think they own a parking space. Do you know people in my road? Not in your road, necessarily, but in in your road, as in people that live in your road. Now, you can park on a driveway. Of course, if you park on a driveway, fantastic. But if you have a road where there are a lot of people that don't have driveways, you don't own a parking space. It's not yours. But it's sort of yours by obligation, isn't it? No, it's not. How can it possibly be? You can park anywhere on the road. It's outside your house. That doesn't make any difference. You don't own the space outside your house. Hmm. Because if you did own that space outside your house, you could go out there and draw a box that says, this is David's space. You're not allowed to do that. It drives me mad. Sorry, David, what's been getting on your nerves this week? I've noticed that that there's more and more things every week that I feel like I'm getting older but not 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 like aches and pains or or gray gray hairs or anything like that it's just behavioral things for instance if a pretty young woman smiles at me now I automatically look behind me to see who she's smiling at and the other thing was I was in the car the other day and my two daughters were in the back seat bickering and you know what I said I said if you don't behave I'll stop the car and make you walk That is is such a dad thing to say. It is such a dad thing to say, wow. When I go in for a physical now, they no longer ask me how old I am. They just carbon date me. (laughs) Those that think I'm a very stable genius. You are listening to the Overboard podcast with David and Ben, or Benjamin, as I like to call him. It's now time for Etymology Corner. There are several tales about the origin of the third degree a saying commonly used for long and arduous interrogations. One theory argues the phrase relates to the various degrees of murder in the criminal code, yet another credits it to Thomas F. Burns, a 19th century New York City policeman who used the pun third-degree Burns when describing his hard-nosed questioning style. In truth, the saying is most likely derived from the Freemasons, a centuries-old fraternal organisation whose members undergo rigorous questioning and examinations before becoming third-degree members or Master Masons. Ah, excellent. Brilliant as always, Dave. You are listening to the Overboard Podcast with David and Ben. The Adventures of Cornflake. 
Clue number three then. The announcement was made that tonight's mystery destination won the race to be named the first fair trade capital of the world on the 1st of March 2004. Where is Cornflake? Y'all listening to the Overboard Podcast with David and Ben. They talk funny and they are funny. This week on Coffee Break Chat, I had the great pleasure of talking to a young author and artist on all things creative and inspirational. Overboard Podcast welcomes Hafsa Idris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed uh, watching your your art develop over the last couple of years since, since I've known you. Um, I'd like to start off, first of all, by asking sort of when you started painting and when you felt that it would be something that you could develop into your profession. But I've been painting for as long as I can remember. Initially, it was just a way of expressing myself. And I remember I would just sit and look at simple things around, for example, water, and try to imitate how it looks and so on. It was really exciting and also rewarding. Um, I don't really live from my art. And it became serious when I moved to Germany. I think I needed something as an outlet for my emotions and thoughts. And then I just started to share my art on social media and people started to like it. It made them happy. So with time, it was not just friends, but friends of friends or people I didn't know who were buying or commissioning. So that's how it all started. I'd like to know a little bit of sort of the backstory about you. You know, um, you left Pakistan and that's where you grew up. And what age did you leave to come over to Germany? So I left Pakistan in November 2016, as I said. I was 24 and I came to Germany for my studies. I was doing master's then and now PhD. But it was, of course, a massive change for me. I grew up in a traditional Muslim family. It was a different culture, language, climate, food, everything. And in Germany, I didn't know anyone. I had no friends or family, so it was very hard. There were times when I felt lonely and lost and unsure. But um, over time, I, I have to say that I felt welcomed and I met people and friends who helped me integrate. And living in Germany for about four years now, it has changed me, lots of things in me. I learned a lot, a lot about me and um, there are still parts of me that I've kept, but I grew as a person after this change and that helped me a lot in my arts too because I could express different things that I didn't do before and experiment with different emotions and so on. There were disadvantages, but many advantages too. So very quickly, what, what are you studying? What, what are your studies? So I did my master's in development studies and now I'm doing PhD in urban sociology. So going back to your art, I know that um, you like the Impressionist style. In fact, you describe your art as modern Impressionism. What, what were the artists that inspired you or continue to inspire you? Why do you like them? I'm massively inspired from, as you said, Impressionist artists and draw inspirations from Monet, from Van Gogh, from Iris Scott. And I like their work because they manipulate art and really vibrant colours and make simple, natural subjects so magical and so uplifting. And that's what I try to do with my art too. 
Why, would you say that your art represents something about you? Yes, um, everything that I create, it has a piece of me in it. Could be the mood I was in when I was creating it. Could be the kind of inspiration I had when when I decided to create it. So yeah, it it has a mark of the artist, no matter who creates it. Well, I um, discovered your art after we became friends, and I was amazed at first of all what, what I noticed about your art is you you were doing. Um, paintings of, of animals and I sort of later discovered that they were actually people's pets and then you would paint the the pet and have the painting side by side with the photo of the pet and, and the, the likeness was amazing I mean <laughs> is that I mean I'm not I'm not a person really that knows much about art so how do you how, how would you do that you know I mean when when you do people's pets for instance how do you capture the personality and how do you make it so lifelike so it's really nerve-wracking, actually, because people know their pets much more than I do. I just look at a photograph or some videos that they would send me, and it's very hard to capture the personality or the character. Um, but I try, before the commission, I try to ask for as many pictures as I can get, and sometimes even videos, to get to know the pet and try to, to do justice. So I have been experimenting with different styles. Sometimes I do use pencils. Sometimes I'm doing paintings with acrylics. And now I'm doing mainly with oil. I, I feel pet portraits are much more nicer when I do them with the pencils. I'm able to capture the personality much more effectively when I use pencils. Okay, but just going back to that, I mean, I, uh, you, you did my dog, my dog's Betty. And um, it captured the the essence of her, and the personality of her. I mean, everything about it. And it's just how you capture the character of them so well um, amazes me. Anyway, um, what you. about what about style and techniques? I mean, what I know that you use your fingers to paint sometimes. I know I've seen that you've done um, videos on YouTube where you're showing people how to finger paint, or you're showing people how you finger paint. Now, I, I'd never, I never knew that people painted with their fingers before I saw you doing this. And when I've seen the finished effect, I can't believe that you've done that with your fingers. It's amazing. Now, how did you develop this technique of painting with fingers? I think it's much easier than how it looks. You just have to use your fingers in a way where how, how you want to express it. It's really easy because I believe. The fingertips they are designed so perfectly to paint and the texture and the composition you can achieve by using finger fingertips it's brilliant of course i like to revisit brushes on and off to it, especially if i'm doing portraits of um, animals like dogs or cats and so on because there are really fine details that you can't get with the finger painting but i enjoy finger painting because it's for me very therapeutic i like the feeling of touching the paint and to be able to control it. And also the fact that we do not need fancy supplies or expensive paint brushes. If we want to create a piece of art, you can do it by using your fingertips. And if you like a bit of mess, then this technique is really fun to express yourself. Yeah, I know if I did, it would be a complete mess. But uh, <laughs> yours, yours, is, yours is very sophisticated. You also write as well, and you're an author. You have books published. Tell, tell us about how you started writing. 
So writing is another thing I do to express myself, especially the ideas or beliefs or opinions that I can't talk about openly. And I feel that I can hide them in a fiction story and publish it. And that's what, I, what exactly I did with my first novel. I remember in high school, I kept a journal and probably that's how I developed this habit of writing. And it was only in 2013 that I published my first novel at the age of 19. It's just, I, it's, it's, it's just an outlet of letting my frustrations and ideas and perceptions out because this is this culture I'm living in right now is such a contrast to where I grew up in and I mm -hmm. think writing helps a lot to let it all out sometimes okay um, and you have you you have a something new coming out very shortly can you tell us about the the new is it a novel it is a novel and I'm waiting for my editor to finish the editing soon so I can publish it by the end of this year, that's the plan. It's called A City Without Children. So it's a story of a young woman who is growing up in Pakistan. So I've set the plot in my own country. And basically things she faces um, in that particular society and she doesn't know what is right and what is wrong. And just trying to discover herself and basically her life. So it's a very complicated story. You have to read it to to really get into it I've, I've read parts of it and, and you do, you're not doing it justice at all there because it is it's brilliantly written the parts that I've read back to the art then uh, what what do you do in, in your studio so you have a studio a small studio you've told me um, how do you create the ambience when you paint what do you do to get yourself in the mood uh, what would be your most important tool that you would have to take if you were setting up a new studio? So for me, the most important thing when I'm about to paint is music. I love to have music in the background and I've created a few playlists, which I choose depending on what I'm painting. And I've got this little box, which is designed in a way by myself. And what's in the box? Um, so there are different sections and I have certain paints that I use frequently many shades of blue and then there is oil that I have to use as a dissolvent and some other little things it's a small box it's not really big so I can move it around and so on but that's the most important thing I prepare that before I prepare my canvas and um, I paint during the sunlight so that's very important for me and that's it very simple so you only use natural light, don't you? You won't you won't paint when there's no natural light. Yeah, because I can see the values of the colours correctly, and I just enjoy it. It's more bright and nice, and of course it's cheap. So why not? To set yourself in the mood, you you have different styles of music. You listen to Bollywood, I've heard, and Queen and Abba. Um, I hear I heard someone told me that sometimes when you're painting, you listen to the Overboard podcast. Oh, yes, I do. Actually, it's something I have started doing recently and it has become a habit now. So I don't listen to podcasts when I'm not painting and I keep the episode for the time that I'm painting and I enjoy it a lot. So it's nice to have something in the background. How do you decide what to paint? Right. Um, so mainly I'm inspired by nature and wildlife and animals, but I do not like to do this one-to-one -one photorealistic replica I always try to leave something of me in what I create 
um, it can be an emotional impulse. It can be a tender moment that I experienced in the past. It can be a place that I'm painting that touched me profoundly or simply a dream. And I also like to play around with colors. So I do not always use the realistic colors. I try to use a rainbow of colors to make it a happy piece of art for somebody who is looking at it. Now, you have had an exhibition, um, and I know that you have another exhibition coming up in October or the end of this month. Um, and how, how do you get your work in an exhibition? How does I mean, I don't know anything about this. How, how would you get your work in an exhibition? Well, if you're not really a famous artist, you have to apply, of course, um, sort of present your portfolio in a way that they see it's something different. So, yeah, I had my exhibition last year in Passau, which was called Beyond the Twilight. And it was a contrast of my paintings, which I did in 2009, because they were mainly yellow, orange and red. And then the paintings which I'm doing these days, which are mainly blue and green. I thought it would be nice to show how I have changed and developed over time. And this year it's starting from 30th September till 16th of November, not in Passau, but a town close to Passau. And they in this exhibition, I'll have just the paintings from 2019 and 2020, so very recent ones. And how could you, how, how do we look at your art? I mean, you know, some, for somebody that's listening that, that, that's fascinated um, and wants to see it, or where, where would they go? So I frequently share my art and the process and the work in progress with videos and photos on my Instagram. You could just look me up with my name, it's Hafsa Idris Art, and I upload the pictures for prints on my Fine Art America website. Or you can simply Google my name and it will link you to my Instagram, Facebook or my Gmail where you can write and contact me if you want to purchase originals or prints. And we will put the websites and the links on our Facebook page and our website. So thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it's been great talking to you and finding out a little bit about how these arty people create their, their work, uh, whether it be through paintings or through writing. Thank you very much, Hafsa Edris. Thank you very much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure and I enjoyed it equally. Overboard Podcast, the inside scoop into the world of travel, tourism and entertainment. The Bird Adventures of Cornflake. So this is it then, clue number four this evening in the Further Adventures of Cornflake, our last one. And it simply is, if you're a music fan, then a trip to Spiller's Records in the heart of the city is strongly recommended. It is recognised as the oldest record shop in the world and also sells tickets to the very best local gigs and events. Back in the day, it sold phonographs and old shellac discs, but today you can find all manner of modern media and the shop has been at its current location since 1940. So, four clues, David. All interesting, but do you know where Cornflake is this evening? Again, Benjamin, I've worked very close to where this place is, so I think I know where it is. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. That's about it for this week, Benjamin. We'd like to thank our contributors this week. As always, the Overboard team, Darren Collins, Matthias Van Dort and Oliver Diak. 
Uh, I'd like to thank our interviewee this week, the wonderful Hafsa Adris. And uh, you can see her artwork on Instagram at Hafsa Adris Art or on her Fine Art America profile. Or go to YouTube and put in Hafsa Adris. Or if you want to contact her directly, um, I'll put the email on our website and Facebook page. If you're enjoying the shows, please subscribe through your listening platform. This way it will download Ready For You, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Anchor and, uh, and others. And this week we would literally like you to spread the word of the Overboard podcast. If you are listening to the podcast right now and you have a Facebook account, please go to the Overboard podcast page, which is at Overboard podcast, and share the link to this show. Let's see how many people can do it. Also, if you're on Twitter, it's Overboard5. Uh, board spelt B-O-R-E-D on all of these addresses. And our website is over-board.com. It's now time for me to say goodnight. Say goodnight, Ben. Good night, Ben. Any views or opinions represented in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions or organisations that contributors may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. The contributors to the podcast make no representations as to the accuracy or completeness of any information on the podcast or any site found by following any links discussed within.